Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AC Podcast. It's me, Troy Lydiot. For those of you who haven't heard or listened to the previous episode, I am excited to introduce myself as our newest host of the Apologetics Canada Podcast. And today, for the first time, I'm sitting alongside your familiar hosts, Andy Steiger and Steve Kim. And we are about to get into it. We're going to be talking about something pretty monumental. 2021 has been off to quite the start. I, for one, can definitely say that the first five days, we started off pretty good, (laughs) and it just seems to have (laughs) taken a turn. I don't know what movie we're in, but it is going a little wild. I think a lot of people looked at 2020 and thought, how could it possibly get any worse? I'm just like, (laughs) yep, (laughs) this is how it goes. I got to be honest with you guys. Uh, Over the holidays, I stopped reading the news pretty much entirely, and and I got to tell you, it felt good. It felt real good. And then a friend of mine called me to let me know about the riots that were happening in the U.S. with Washington and storming of the Capitol building and whatnot. And then I started getting back in the news. And I must confess, two things hit me. First of all, the weight of all that's going on in our world, you know, just comes right back onto your shoulders and, and you just feel the heaviness of the moment that we live in right now. Secondly, as I peruse different news sites, and in particular, I went in between CNN, Fox, and BBC, just to get a variety of different perspectives of what was going on. I mean, I hadn't been in the news for a couple of weeks, and I got to tell you, it felt like I was in three different universes. It really shows you just how polarized not just our countries are, And listen, this isn't just the United States. This is all over the place. And by throwing the BBC in there just was just a further testament to me that this is worldwide. We it's just a polarized world we're living in right now. Let's take a couple steps back. Troll, you've done some reading on this. Maybe there are other listeners out there like us who haven't really been keeping up to date with the news because, you know, like quite frankly, we're all tired of this. So um so if there's somebody who's been sort of living under that temporary rock and doesn't know what we're referring to, could you tell us a little bit more about what happened in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, for sure. They're calling it the storming of the United States Capitol, which was a riot and violent attack against the 117th United States Congress on January 6th. It was carried out by a mob of Trump supporters in an attempt to overturn his defeat in the 2020 presidential election. After attending a pro-Trump rally, thousands of his supporters marched down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol. Many stormed the building to disrupt the Electoral College vote count by a joint session of the U.S. Congress, attempting to prevent essentially the formalization of President-elect Joe Biden's election victory. They were breaching police perimeters. Rioters were vandalizing and looting parts of the building for several hours. There's a lot of crazy photos online right now. The assault eventually led to the evacuation and lockdown of the Capitol. It is believed up to now um, that there have been over a dozen police injured, five people dead, among them one police officer. There was one person shot and three people died in medical emergencies related to the riot itself. So uh, pretty much across um, the media, there is the consistent tone of this is bad. This is really bad for the American democracy just across the board. Uh, a well-known American journalist 
he quoted as saying, this is the worst thing to happen to America since 9-11. And that's a pretty heavy statement. I think uh, another aspect of this is that's worth noting is it began with the president making a speech. He wasn't at the Capitol building. He was, a, he was some miles away from it. But after he makes this speech, if I understand correctly, there's a group that were attending that who clearly had come prepared to riot, who had come armed, even had come with climbing gear like like this was... Uh, planned at some level, if I understand correctly. And so then they head off in that direction. Is that what you guys read? Some Something along those lines. I mean, one of the tricky things is these days, I find it so difficult to trust the mainstream media. Like, I mean, this is no secret for those who have been listening for a little while. My take on mainstream media, and I'm worried about their bias, and I find it difficult to take anything at face value these days. You know, there there are some people who also claim that, you know, there have been Antifa that were present at these rallies who were there to stir things up, that sort of thing. I mean, even if there were some Antifa people mixed in there, it doesn't change the fact that there have been Trump supporters doing these things and whatnot. And so it's just a hot mess, right? Trying to sift through everything. It is a hot mess. There's no question about it. I think that in many ways, this is the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at the election, this election was absolutely divided. Mm. It was so divided that it came down to thousands of votes. Like this was an election that could have easily gone either way. And that's what makes this so challenging is you have the this situation where many of us on the night of the election went to bed seeing that Trump was winning and wake up and all of a sudden it's Biden. And, you know, at three in the morning. There's all of a sudden a cash load of votes that were put in and 95% of them were for Biden. That is like a perfect storm for a conspiracy, right? 100%. Like, you can't help but go, man, that's messed up. And, And Steve, you were alluding to this. People are already on edge and people already feel like they're being duped. They don't know who to trust. They don't know who to believe. And so... There's already just distrust out there. And so then you hear about these mail-in votes that come in overwhelmingly for Biden, you know, mysteriously in in the morning or whatnot. And you can't help but think, okay, that's really messed up. Well, now that frustration is being stoked and you can't help but appreciate that there's a bunch of people that are upset. Now, we were talking about this earlier, and this is something that we've been talking about all year. In 2016, the word post-truth was, you know, named the word of the year. I think we're living in the aftermath of what's been going on in our culture for a while now. And if anything, and I'm curious how you guys will respond to this, because I personally put the majority of the blame of what's going on in our world right now. Uh, Maybe this is controversial. Maybe people are going to disagree with me on this. I don't know. Uh, But on our media, I think our media has created in many ways a hot mess because I feel like we are dealing with a 21st century version of propaganda that's been going on in the media where we don't know where to go to get some level of truth 
or some level of what actually is taking place to such a degree that I have friends that are not sure whether or not they can believe that the Capitol building was actually stormed. There is debate now whether or not those events actually took place. Uh, We're starting to see more video footage coming out, though, and more pictures that are, I think, are confirming that that actually took place. But you can appreciate the level of distrust. People don't even know whether or not they could believe that actually happened or if Trump supporters are being framed. Yeah, and we need to remember we serve a God who is countercultural. So I think it's definitely worth looking you know, when society's all going one way with an opinion or an idea to just take a look at what the other side might be saying or what the other direction might be entailing. And I would add to that in saying that if we don't acknowledge that unrest and the reasons for that unrest in this specific situation, it's pretty dismissive. And that's not going to get us anywhere. You know, I think any person who believes that they're a critical thinker is someone who is willing to look at both sides of the coin before closing the argument or doing away with the other point of view. And I mean, let's call it what it is. There's a lot of fear here. And with good reason, to be fair. It's like if my daughter falls down, I watched her do it. She didn't hit her head. Nothing's broken. She's not bleeding, but she's still crying. If I walk over to her and I don't acknowledge her tears or her crying and I just say, get up, You know, that has only ever added to her increase in volume, right? And the thing is, is until I get down to her level, regardless of how ridiculous I may think it is, until I get to her level and really understand that she was just, that it just scared her, and now she's embarrassed. You know, the Republicans started their day losing the Senate. So if you want to talk about adding gas to a flame that was already there, I understand the embarrassment. I don't condone storming the Capitol, but I understand the embarrassment for sure. I want to highlight this because I think this is a key. This is something that before we did the show, we were we were talking about because I think a question that you've got to ask with all that's going on is why is this so heated? Why is there so much frustration around what's going on? I think you're absolutely right, Troy, with the elections that were happening in the Senate. And the emotions are already high on on so many fronts, right? First of all, the election for the president was on a razor's edge. There are events that took place in that election without question looking at it looks odd at the least. No matter what side you're on, you can't help but go, Okay, that seems unusual. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that I uh, am trying to support this conspiracy, but I'm just of saying course. just just as an outsider, you're just observing all this. I mean, as you said, Steve, this is a hot mess. This is exactly what people didn't want to happen. You know, it would have been much easier if this election wasn't so close. Now, what I want to highlight real quick here, I think this might be helpful for listeners to appreciate. Again, I've talked on this before, but I just want to bring it up again because I think that we're living in this cultural moment that has been building. Now, I've traced this back before for people all the way back to the Enlightenment. Back in the Enlightenment, pre-Enlightenment, an authoritative statement was a theological statement. That's where power was held. Then we move in the Enlightenment, an authoritative statement became a scientific statement. That's where power was held. 
I would argue that since World War II, a shift in power has been occurring where science has lost its authority and law has become the authoritative statement of our time. Theology's lost its authority. Science has lost its authority. Law has become the authority of our time. And so, in light of that, and we could tease that out more if, if people aren't convinced of it, but I think it's pretty clear that this is what's going on. Clearly, if that's the case, then what's going on in our culture right now and why it is such a hot mess is this is a grab for power. And people see that an election isn't just a moment of democracy. This is a moment of absolute power. And people are afraid then of what's coming. Yeah. And just to give you a bit of an appreciation for how American conservatives might be feeling right now. You have a Democrat as the president. The House is controlled by now with the Georgia runoff election, conservatives lost it, right? They voted in two Democrats. So the Senate scale has tipped now. The lower house is, you know, the Democrats have the majority. And so what that means is there's nothing stopping the Democrats from getting what they want. And one of the things that they also said they wanted to do was to expand the number of Supreme Court justices from nine to 13. And so then they're going to control all three branches of the government. And so you can kind of, whether you agree with any of these things or not, all that is to say is American conservatives, there is a lot of fear there and there is a lot of anxiety there because they can see what's coming, right? Um, Now, Andy, you mentioned the sort of where power lies, theological statement to scientific statement to now legal statements. Now, What's different about legal statement? Legal statement here is all about power, whereas theological statement and scientific statement, that was more about truth. Legal statement is a little, I mean, it involves the state, right? And what comes with the state is coercion. In other words, when you lose faith in objective truth and the work of persuasion takes time and effort and energy, and you want to expedite this process, you go to coercion, right? And so one of the things that I really find interesting is people talk about how we live in a postmodern age. And people talk about it as the postmodernism is a thing in and of itself. The way I see it, it's more of a, an extension of modernism. Because in modernism, you start to lose this idea of essence, the, the universals and those kinds of things. All you have are particulars. Now, if you didn't understand any of that philosophical jargon, don't worry. All that it means is modernism set the stage for postmodernism to come along where truth just becomes subjective, right? And, and where, where does that kind of idea have the strongest grip? It's the university. And it is from the university that we get our journalists right? Mm. That's where we get our journalists. And so we have a bunch of journalists that don't believe in objective truth. And so then their news reporting, right? Their journalism becomes all about, as the New Jersey Senator Cory Booker said at the Kavanaugh hearing, this becomes your truth, my truth, right? So CNN has their truth. Fox News has their truth, right? BBC has their truth. One journalist said, I saw this on 
I forget where I saw this. I probably YouTube or something like that. This one journalist was talking about how if you look at news reports from back in the 50s, 60s, all the way on through the present, you will see the difference very, very clearly. That today's journalism is all about driving your narrative. So that's the kind of world we're living in. Throw the social media into the mix, and you've got this polarization that leads to something like the riot at the Capitol. So if, if you put those pieces then together, like what you're saying, Steve, which I absolutely agree with you, then the media isn't so much concerned about truth as it is concerned about power and keeping about what is going to be in power. So that narrative then they're going to want to tell is the the narrative that is going to sustain power that they that they want or that they're advocating for that's why i i think what we're seeing on the news here is such a political polarization in what's happening in the news and the sorts of narratives that are that are being told and why you can go on a number of different news sites and feel like you've been taken into four or five different worlds, uh, and they look so completely different, and what's being talked about is so completely different. What's really interesting about what's happening, and, and a little terrifying, is this isn't new. Right. Like, this is, I hope this doesn't, you know, freak people out, but pre-World War II, this this is the sort of stuff that was going on, and and during the war, this is the stuff that was going on. And one of the things, when you read historical documents, one of the greatest frustrations, and I actually want to share three of the greatest frustrations that, that we have seen come out of World War II. And I also want to encourage listeners, you've heard that we we're doing a literary expedition where we're, we're going to be looking at two books and some unpublished lectures by Michael Plani. But we're looking at uh, The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, and we're looking at uh, The Annihilation of Man by Leslie Paul. And one of the things you'll note is that those were written during the war. So we're going to look into that. But one of the things that Lewis gets at is this idea of truth and ethics. But these are these are some of the things that are coming out of that time. So let me just give you three that I think are, are significant. One of the main ones is propaganda. They were frustrated because they didn't know where to go to find truth. They didn't know what was actually happening. They didn't know who to actually believe. And for them, it was a little bit different from us. But you take Soviet Russia, for example, right? You didn't know what to believe because the media was being controlled. The narrative was being controlled by the government, by totalitarian government. And so you can see how people are frustrated. They're trying to find out, you know, what, what's actually true and what's actually not. It's interesting to me that, you know, we don't live in a totalitarian government, but yet we found ourselves in the same, in a similar predicament. And I think this is interesting as people are refer, looking back on this is that capitalism has some of the same challenges as totalitarianism. They just show themselves in different ways. Uh, let me give you an example. In totalitarianism, we've seen in, say, again, I'll use Soviet Russia as an example. There was a, a moment where Stalin put around 2,000 scientists into prison. He did so because they would not adhere to his version of the truth, which was a scientist, if, if you will, by the name of Lysenko, who held to a different version of genetics than, than we do, something called Lamarckianism, instead of Mendelian, Mendelian, Mendelian's 
So, uh, Mendelian? I, I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, Mendelian. Mandalorian. <laughs> genetics. Yeah. Mendel, Mendel's genetics theory. At any rate, they wouldn't adhere to that, puts them in prison, and ultimately he's seeking to restrict the narrative, right, of what is being told, and ultimately what sort of research can be done and what sort of results you can achieve. It's interesting because we have a similar problem in capitalism where companies will invest in certain kind of research and clearly are not going to invest in other kinds of research that they know could hurt their bottom line. And thus, there can be this incentive in capitalism to control the narrative again, especially for a company that is seeking their own interests, in which case it would be the role of the government to intervene in those moments to seek to challenge those companies that are doing that. You know, again, their their goal is to steer towards the truth and to be that safeguard. And I think that that's one of the challenges where you've got a moment where that's happening right now where there's just an absolute distrust of the government, that there isn't that belief that that narrative can be safeguarded, that we're seeking the truth as a society, that the government has truth as its best interest. And I think that's one of the challenges and one of the dangers of, of where we're at right now, where in a post-truth culture, who do you trust when we don't have this moment where we can, where a lot of people, I should say, don't feel like they can trust their government? Now, let me just pause there before I share any of these others that I think are relevant to where we're at. Just any thoughts with regards to that? Any pushback? I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree at all. It's just like you said, it's this thirst and hunger for power. And and this is why I feel we get this term from people like, oh, they have their hidden agendas or this and that. And and I've come to this place of I'm like, the agenda is not so hidden. It just is. I think in a lot of ways, it's much simpler than it seems. I think it like it really comes down to man, we we want power. We want to be in control. We want all the control. And we also, when we're in power, we want to divvy up power. You know, we want to give people control to make them feel like they're a part of it. Now, this gets really interesting, Troy, because I think you're absolutely right. It's all about power. But what do you want to do with that power? And this is where things get interesting, because when we look back at historical moments like World War II, what we find, and it is so surprising for people, is that the violence that occurred was not because of a lack of, of morality or a lack of moral passion. It was the exact opposite. When you read these historical documents, they would say to you, it was driven by very much this this moral narrative. So that's number one, and that's number two for you that I think might surprise people, that it's a moral passion, actually, but it's a misplaced moral passion that can lead to these moments of incredible violence. Now, here's the third one, and this one will creep people out. Social justice was a huge deal pre-World War II. You read these documents, and again, you're like, man, this could be yesterday yeah. like or today. There's like nothing new like, under the you sun. Know, <laughs> There you go. There's not. You know, you wonder where social justice warriors came from, man. Pre-World War II, they were much more hardcore social justice warriors than today. People don't think about this. Where do you think communism came from? Mm. What do you think communism is? That was just social justice warriors on steroids. (laughs) With government power, right? Backing. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. Like When you look at 
guys like Karl Marx and, and what he advocated for and things like that. They saw themselves as social justice warriors. Yeah. And hey, and he's got a lot of really noble things to say. Like he is driven by the concern for the laborers, like the proletariat being exploited by the capitalists. Communism, by and large, came from this moral passion, like we've been talking about, to see justice done when laborers are languishing under the greed of those who own the means of production, the factories and things like that. And of course, when government power gets in there, we saw what happened in the 20th century. And we continue to see what is happening, say, in a place like North Korea. You know, and, and I grew up in South Korea with a lot of this anxiety because we've, we've seen what that kind of moral passion can lead to when it's misplaced and it just doesn't match reality and it just it gets corrupted by government power. One of the challenges that we're dealing with is in the midst of this is then a loss of communication. People don't want to communicate anymore. They don't want to argue in a good way where we can have dialogue and discussion and seek truth. But in a post-truth culture where truth is out the window and you you don't care about truth anymore, then it's just a power grab. That's all that's left, especially if you are, you know, you have that misplaced passion or, you know, you've got that passion, that social justice drive, if you will, for whatever it is that is your concern. And you can imagine where you've got, you know, in the United States as an example, where you've got Democrats and and Republicans. But trust me, this isn't just happening in the U.S. This is happening around the world, where more and more in politics, it is about power. And people understand that. If you want to get something done in the government or in your society, if you want to see change, you have to enact a law. That's what happens now. You don't come into some sort of scientific discussion or rational debate, you know, to try to figure out what the truth is. You've, in your moral passion, you've already got the truth in your mind. Now it's just a matter of forcing everyone into that truth, which is going to require the law. That's why I said we're, we've made this transition of power, because ultimately what happened in World War II is we saw what happened where science could go completely out of control. And we saw this moral passion go completely out of control. And there was a while that we you have a society who's like, man, we don't ever want that to happen again. And so in the midst of that, you see this loss in the trust of, of science. And, and I think clearly in the Enlightenment project put way too much stock into the scientific endeavor. And there was a need for balance. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. But at least they had an idea that there was truth out there and that truth could be found. However, as that began to wane, it just became, as you see in totalitarian governments, like I already explained to you with, say, Stalin, even there, science started to shift into what do I want to be the truth? And then I'll just say that that's the truth. You have different things happening at that time, like scientific planning and, and whatnot. People just had this idea that you could just wield science any old way you wanted to achieve what you what you wanted, right. right? It was just a matter of force and just a matter of saying to scientists, you will study this. You will solve cancer. You know, you will, you know, solve these different challenges that that we have. And 
Again, that gets into a whole nother question, whether or not can, can, does that even work? Well, it doesn't work. And we found that it didn't work. It collapsed in on itself. But now here we are in the aftermath of that. We've forgotten a lot of the lessons that came out of mm-hmm. World War II. And, and I fear that if we don't get a healthy perspective as a society and as a world, we're going to find ourselves back into the violence that we found ourselves in at that time in this grab for power. Here's a lesson that I've learned from parenting. Uh, Sharina and I have been, over the last couple of years, really been investing in, okay, what does good parenting look like? Because we were just really struggling, disciplining our kids and, and things like that. One of the things that I learned, coercion doesn't work. It will control the external behavior, but nothing changes on the inside. So That's if right. I see you know, my son doing something terrible, like hitting his sister, let's say, and I you know, yell at him or I do something else to punish him, all that's going to do is next time he's going to try to do it without being seen. Because what I haven't done is actually help him get the sort of the emotional skills, if you will, the emotional learning, the, the, the how-to of navigating through his frustrations and emotions and things like that. I haven't helped him grow. All I've done is control the external behavior. Interestingly enough, in Korea, the word for the state is the national household, because in the Confucianist kind of a view, the government is really an extension of your family life, that your subjects obey the king in the same way children obey the parents, those sorts of things. And so there's the idea. And so I look at the lessons that I've learned from parenting, and then I look at the government and go, you know, if you just try to coerce people into things, Ultimately, it's not going to work. That's one of the reasons why wherever persecution spreads to oppress Christianity, the church only thrives, right? If you really want to undermine Christianity and Christians in general, what you have to do is you have to just make them really super comfortable. And that's in a lot of ways what we've been seeing in the West is the decline of Christianity because a lot of Christians, quite honestly, are way too comfortable, right? And yeah, and I, I actually want to come back to what you were saying earlier, Troy, because you said something about it. You know, God is countercultural, and, and I think we, as the citizens of heaven, we as the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King, and it is His name that we bear. I think, yeah, we should reflect that and be countercultural. And what might that look like? Um, I have a friend, I won't mention his name, but somebody that I went to Bible school with. Now, this guy, he leans much farther to the left than I do in terms of the political views on things. And one of the things he said on Facebook recently is this, that you know, if you support what happened in Washington, D.C., I'm going to remove you from Facebook, and at the family reunion, I'm not going to talk to you. I look at that and I go, dude, like you're a Christian. You and I went to the same Bible school. Like, how did this happen? Is that the extent to which your Christian charity will go? I mean, did Jesus say if somebody holds a different political view than yours, then don't talk to them? Is that what he said? Did he not tell us, like, even if you see them as enemies, political enemies, didn't our Lord teach us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute you and bless them? Isn't that what what he taught us? How is it that we're saying, okay, because you and I differ politically, you were... So here's a, um, 
I think this is where we really need to think about virtue as a people. Now, democracy, it is said, just won't work if you don't have a people of virtue. And largely in a post-truth culture, we've abandoned that idea because, I mean, who's to say what virtue is, right? So we have in the West peoples who are unable to govern themselves. They cannot be autonomous. Right? And by autonomous, I mean, I mean that in the Kantian sense of governing yourself, not like the existentialist sense of you can do whatever you want, I'm autonomous. No, I'm not talking about that. Can we govern ourselves? A friend of mine told me that if you want to see whether a people can govern themselves, you just go to the parking lot of a grocery store. Then you can see, right? And you see like shopping carts lying around everywhere. I mean, for goodness sake, take half a minute and put the cart back where it's supposed to go, right? We don't even have that virtue. How are we expected to govern ourselves well? And so we've lost that virtue. And one of the virtues that we've lost is that tolerance. I mean, not the political buzzword tolerance, but really people who disagree with you. How am I going to have a dialogue? We largely um, kind of culturally speaking, not just individual people, but culturally speaking, we've lost the ability to think critically. We don't know what it looks like to persuade one another rationally. And so we resort to name calling and all those kinds of things. And if you don't believe me, just go on YouTube and read comments for a while, right? Like Andy, you say all the time, like, uh, that'll really restore your hope in humanity, right? Um, (laughs) And so what I think we should do is one of the things that I always advocate for is don't attribute evil motives on the other side, right? You may disagree with them, but don't think of it as, they just want to destroy our country. They want to destroy democracy. Whether you're a Democrat saying that about Republicans after seeing what happened in Washington, D.C., or whether you're Republicans looking at the Democrats, oh, now they have control over the government and they're going to destroy it. No, like, I don't think Donald Trump wakes up every morning going, okay, how can I screw up America today? I don't think Joe <laughs> Biden is going to wake up in the morning and say, okay, how can I tear this country apart? You know, nobody's thinking that. But I think, I, I genuinely believe that they actually have the best interest of the American people in mind. And I would say the same thing about Canada. Uh, and I would say the same thing about the province of Alberta, where I live, and in BC, where I'm from. And my encouragement to people is be countercultural, look at both sides of the story, or all sides of, of the story. If you think, man, so-and-so who is liberal is brainwashed, man, so-and-so who's conservative is totally like doing groupthink, chances are you're not really reading both sides. And if you know, for example, that all you listen to and read are from you know, the National Review, the Ben Shapiro show, right? The Prager U. And if that is the totality of your news source, you should maybe question, maybe I should read something from MSNBC, <laughs> maybe CNN, those kinds of things. And the same thing on the other side, if all you listen to is the Young Turks or Huffington Post, New York Times, maybe you should pick up something from the Ben Shapiro show, so on and so forth. I think that's one way in which as Christians, Really, not just Christians either, but I think as a people, we can be countercultural. Yeah. And to your point, just very, very practically, you look at scripture and you look at the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were different accounts of the same story. So when you're trying to come to a greater understanding of anything, 
If you have multiple point of views within the same context, you're only going to benefit from that access. I have a friend of mine whose name's Barry. He's an old sage, 79 years old. He and I meet regularly to talk, and I find him to be such a, an encouragement to me. And we were just talking yesterday, and he said, in the year 2020, he said God gave him three words that he said he needed to work on in his life. And, uh, and I love that, uh, you know, 79 years old, and he's like, man, the Lord's got something to teach me, and, uh, and he wants to hear what it is. And, and he said this, and I, you know, this encouraged me. I just want to share with you listeners, because I think that it's good for us uh, to, to think about. And he said this, that, that he learned in 2020, and I believe this is going to be true of 2021. He said, he, he, first of all, the Lord just gave him the word, accept that he needed to learn to just accept the situation that he's in. Now, he d- he's not saying that he was quick to, to clarify. I'm not saying that we this is some sort of passive just kind of giving up. No, this is just coming to grips with this is the reality of what we're in. You know, we need to accept that. I think that there's a lot of us that don't want to live in the moment. We're just frustrated by the moment. We're frustrated we can't travel. We're frustrated we can't hang out with our family. We're frustrated. And there's almost this temptation to just try to live into, I got to get into 2021. I got to get into 2022. I got I just got to get out of this moment. And I, I think there's some of us who just need to realize this is what we're in. We're in this moment. We need to accept that we're in this broken, frustrated world that we're in right now. And I think that speaks to a lot of what you were saying, Troy. And then the second thing he said is encourage, that the Lord really put it on his heart to encourage. And I, and I believe that we are living in a moment more than ever where people just need encouragement. And then lastly, he said trust. And I, and I, I think that that's probably the word of the year, <laughs> 2021, trust, that you and I need to trust in the Lord. He, he is our hope. And I think in the midst of a broken circumstance is when you really start to see where your trust actually lies. And I think there's some of us that we need to refocus where our trust actually is founded. And again, this goes back to what you were saying, Troy. Our trust needs to be in the Lord. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us this week on the AC Podcast. You've been listening to Storming the Capital, Implications of a Post-Truth Culture with myself, Troy Lydiot, Steve Kim, and Andy Steiger on behalf of Apologetics Canada. As always, love God, love people. God bless.